Today on CityCast Chicago, the city says it's running out of money to help the more than 8,000 largely Venezuelan asylum seekers that have arrived in Chicago since the fall. And a pandemic border measure set to expire this week could mean more migrants are coming as officials are scrambling to communicate and find funding for housing and other needs. Block Club reporter Madison Saavedra has been talking directly with people arriving in Chicago and explains what she's hearing. Plus, we talked to the head of a little village organization helping asylum seekers. It's Monday, May 8th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago's talking about. Madison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jacoby. I appreciate the work that you've been doing, not only to cover neighborhoods across Chicago and only the way that Block Club can, uh, but also your work following, again, these more than 8,000 human beings that have been bused, trained, sent on planes to Chicago over the last year. What's the overall picture here? What happens when uh, asylum seekers arrive and, and where they're being housed? I think the answer to that question is, uh, it depends. You know, last fall when people were arriving, um, I know the Salvation Army, that was a big um, kind of respite shelter. So where people would go maybe immediately, but not to stay for an extended period of time. When the buses arrived, they called my office and they said, hey, Baltazar, can we use your, your back part of your office? And I said, okay, um, let's see how many migrants are arriving. Um, I was thinking it's going to be maybe 20, but when we saw the hundreds of them coming in, uh, I told the city, no, I cannot house that many. And they then um, called the mayor and they said, hey, we have hundreds of migrants arriving in buses. That's Baltazar Enriquez, president of the Little Village Community Council. So... We pushed, pushed that the mayor had a, a center and they used the Salvation Army on Chicago and um, Holman. We should already had a uh, plan for migrants that were already here, that had been here for years, assisting them, helping them. But there is no, there was no plan. And now that the, that the migrants are here, um, they don't know what to do. Now, places like Police district, um, you know, offices are places where people are showing up uh, kind of immediately. Um, I know last fall and throughout the winter, people were also being told to go to hospitals. Um, And, you know, this is all under the um, that shelters are at capacity. So people are kind of having to be either creative, um, you know, it's probably not the best way to describe it, but they're having to go to unconventional places in order to find a roof over their head to stay for, you know, maybe a day, maybe a couple of days, maybe a week. We also saw a couple weeks ago people showing up at O'Hare Airport and actually staying there for a couple of days. I had some colleagues go to the airport to talk to folks and they were quickly transported to other places across the city. Um, but you know, they, you know, people were sleeping in the in the hallways of the of the airport. So It really, I think, depends on how people are showing up um, and the lack of coordination that that comes with that. Yeah, this week, a federal border measure known as Title 42 is set to expire. Madison, what is Title 42? 
So Title 42, I believe a, a kind of a pandemic era um, law initiative that was really used uh, under the uh, like Trump administration and is obviously still in place. It allows the government to expel people, you know, send them back across the border before they can apply for asylum. So kind of justifying during the pandemic, like, we don't want to further spread COVID-19. Um, and, you know, this is one way that we could prevent that. Um, so that expiring would mean that, uh, you know, people wouldn't be able to be turned away as quickly as they are under Title 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the pandemic, have people questioned the logic behind Title 42? Just, you know, you know, people coming here should be able to, um, you know, a- attempt to, to get asylum, you know, just sort of sending people back even under the, the pandemic. Have people sort of questioned the, the, you know, sort of the humane enforcement of that law? Yeah, absolutely. There, I, Title 42 had and has a lot of critics who question how effective it is in terms of curbing any kind of public health concerns and, you know, questioning, is it really just a excuse to prevent people from their right, their ability to ask for asylum, um, you know, when they enter the United States? They're crossing eight countries, Colombia, Panama, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, Costa Rica, Mexico, and then the United States. So while in their, in their, in their journey, They've been robbed. They've been kidnapped. Because these individuals are in a country where the government is the oppressor, where the president, if you don't support him, he'll make you suffer. Um, And the wages are on the floor. You know, they get paid $5 a day and the loaf of bread is about $3 to $4. Milk is about $3 to $4 in Venezuela. So either you stay and die or you go seek a better future, a better place and This is what the United States is all about. I can only imagine that as more and more asylum seekers are given that opportunity, this sort of political game that Greg Abbott has been playing, the governor in Texas, will probably only grow as more and more people uh, are sent up to Chicago. Does there seem like there's any end in sight to that, um, uh, like political maneuvering by Southern governors? I don't think so. I don't think there is an end in sight, uh, especially with Title 42 set to expire. Uh, You know, Governor Greg Abbott is saying that as many as 13,000 people could be crossing the border a day. So I imagine that there is no end to this. He hasn't suggested that he's going to stop this practice, uh, you know, or other governors uh, who have instituted something similar. Um, I believe in like the most recent sort of back and forth between um, Governor Abbott and Mayor Lori Lightfoot was kind of just some finger pointing like, you know, you stop it. No, you ask the federal government to step in. So it really doesn't seem like at least Governor Abbott is interested in finding a peaceful solution. Mm -hmm. And as we think about you know, Governor Pritzker's response, Mayor Lifa and soon to be Mayor Brandon Johnson, you know, how has their coordination and their response changed since last uh, August? Because, again, it, it 100 percent caught the city off guard when this started in August. But now we're in the second week of May. Certainly the lack of communication or coordination from Texas and other states hasn't improved. So I can't imagine 
it's gotten easier to predict, you know, necessarily predict the future. I know back in the fall when buses first started arriving, it was almost like an underground network of nonprofits that like nonprofits in Texas that were reaching out to contacts in Illinois and Chicago and trying and like, I remember somebody literally telling me somebody from a nonprofit in Texas just told me that they saw the bus go by on the highway. That was the heads up that, you know, that particular person, like that nonprofit was given. So I don't think that has changed. And especially uh, a couple of weeks ago with folks showing up at O'Hare, I think that was another instance of the city really being caught off guard. I, I don't know if you could really say that it's more organized to no fault of their own necessarily. <laughs> I think as people have focused on the fallout between coordination between governments, both in Illinois and Texas and what's happening in Chicago, one thing that's been lost is the voice from these individuals arriving. And I know you followed along with several uh, with Borderless Magazine. What were some of those stories that have stuck with you? Uh, I mean, honestly, every single story that we wrote has stuck with me. Um, we followed um, seven individuals and then a family of three. So, uh, you know, a mother, father, and their two-year-old daughter. Um, all of their, like, all of their faces still stay with me because they were so raw and open and honest about their journey and why they came and what their experience had been like, um, you know, in the weeks, months since they'd arrived. There was one individual who, you know, I spent hours talking with him over the course of several weeks. And he, his, his journey once he arrived was very interesting because he, he faced some like health problems. So, you know, he already had traversed the super dangerous journey of, you know, making it on foot from Venezuela to the border. Um, you know, he detailed getting really sick in the jungle, um, you know, having to traverse the Darien Gap, which is a really dangerous part of the journey. And then he makes it to Chicago um, and he actually, he almost died. He, uh, he was really open and talking to me about how he accidentally overdosed on drugs while he was staying in a Chicago shelter. And uh, he was in the hospital for, for several days. And I just can't imagine being in a new country where, you know, I, I don't speak the main language. I don't have many friends or family and you're all alone in the hospital. And, um, you know, He luckily made a full recovery, uh, but I I think about his experience a lot. Of the arriving asylum seekers, some are from countries in Africa, in the Middle East, other parts of Europe. But as we said, many of them are from Venezuela. And when they get to Texas, you know, do you have any sense of what they're being told about what they can expect when they come to Chicago? What, you know, what have people heard about Chicago? What do they, they think they're going to get on the other side of that, you know, probably very confusing and, and terrifying journey here? I think it's a mixed bag. I think some people are told very little and they're just told go to Chicago or sleep on the street, you know, almost so to speak. I talked to one young man who, since he was old enough, um, you know, he was, I believe, 21. He wasn't allowed to stay with his family in Texas, like at the shelter. So they basically told him, go to Chicago or just, you know, be alone. We don't have space for you. Um, He wanted to go to New York, but they just said, go to Chicago. So he really had no idea what he was getting into. But another young man, 
he had had friends who made the journey a couple weeks or a couple days earlier than him and had already made it to Chicago. And they were actually, they were giving him information, you know, like, this is the shelter I'm at. This is where you can come. Like they're, they're feeding us. They're giving us a place to stay. Um, I think he still had pretty tempered expectations, um, but at least it was a somewhat free flowing, um, you know, exchange of information. You know, he, he had a better sense of what he was getting into. Our organization uh, has helped out about 4,500 migrants or asylum seekers. And um, we had uh, gotten a fame through them, you know, word of mouth. Hey, go to the Little Village Community Council and they'll help you. And even when they're coming from Venezuela, they'll let them know, hey, come to La Villita, they'll help you. Because that's what Little Village is in Spanish, La Villita. So they look for us. They know that we exist and we know that we're helping them not only get socks, shoes, uh, underwear, T-shirts, clothing, jackets. Uh, some of our members have allowed them to stay in their homes. We have found them jobs, cash paying jobs. But at the same time, I think there's quite a few people who don't know. They're just told, go to Chicago. They welcome immigrants. Someone there will feed you and give you a place to stay. Um, at, like with Whether or not that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right now, the big debate is where to house individuals as they arrive to the city. Uh, and while we've seen networks of nonprofit mutual aid groups, everyday Chicagoans come out and provide food, provide clothing, provide shelter, there have also been resistance to shelters in neighborhoods by community members, by older people. What is the concerns that you're hearing from community members? Because it feels like due to the lack of communication, due to the lack of coordination, the idea to put a shelter in a, in a woodlawn, in a South Shore, in a Jefferson Park, and, you know, they sort of pop up. And by the time the community even knows about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you really hit on one of the biggest issues is lack of communication. I think a lot of people have expressed like, we had no idea this would even be a possibility. And now you're saying it's going to happen this month or next week. Um, and it's tough because I don't know how much heads up people would be happy with, you know, to say maybe like, oh, we'll do this in six months. I don't know if that would necessarily be better. And I don't think the city necessarily has a plan six months out. Um, and I think the other big issue that people are bringing up is just like, you're going to bring, you're going to bring a bunch of people into our neighborhood and give them resources. Why couldn't you have been doing this for existing community members? You know, people experiencing homelessness are most likely live in these neighborhoods already. So I think people uh, are arguing why, can't they get something like this that you're giving to these new arrivals? Um, it is a really, it's a really difficult conversation. And I, you know, I, I don't live in those neighborhoods. So like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pass any judgment on, you know, them expressing how they feel. Um, but it is, it's complex, because I don't think there's a whole lot of options of where people can stay. Yeah, Dixon Romeo, uh, organizer in South Shore, who we've talked about, who uh, who's been on the podcast, who works for affordable housing um, and collective rights in South Shore, really came out and said, in these moments, you see black and brown communities being pit against one another, that these arriving migrants don't have the power to give South Shore more affordable housing to invest resources. They themselves are coming from countries that have been impacted by the, the movement of imperialism. And now, as they're sort of being moved 
in some ways haphazardly into neighborhoods, it feels like um, they're sort of fomenting a, a, a resistance and, and, a, and a pushback in these communities that, you know, if if they were invested in, if people felt taken care of, you might not see this same level of tension. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you, yeah, I think you said it right, really well. Do you think lawmakers in Chicago are really taking that into account? Because now a move is to house them, uh, to house arriving asylum seekers in park district field houses. And a lot of these decisions are left up to individual alders, you know, but when I looked at video from, from, from South Shore, there just seemed to be so much tension in the room, uh, you know, purely based on, it, it doesn't feel like the individuals on those stages, the alders, the, the community members, you know, feel, uh, you know, just a part of the process. I'm, I'm sure city officials are aware of the pushback and I haven't talked to any city officials about this directly. I do know that there are, they're looking for a certain set of requirements in facilities and in buildings in order to house people. Like they need things like, well, just straight up enough space. There needs to be things like enough bathrooms, enough showers. I imagine they can't be condemned unsafe buildings where I think a lot of people point out, um, you know, well, there's vacant buildings here. There's, you know, stores that have moved out of like this location. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's that easy as saying like, there's a vacant building. Why can't people stay there? Is Chicago set to receive any more state or federal resources? That's the thing that I hear most from city officials. And I think uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot in in a recent letter to city council expressed the need for more state and federal funding, um, particularly from uh, FEMA, like that federal agency. I think they want substantially more. I understand that there's so much chaos in the coordination of this process, but what are some simple ways people can get involved? I think there's a lot of wish lists going on. So whether that's like buying new things from Amazon um, or certain offices or buildings that have drop-off boxes for, you know, unopened goods or brand new, uh, brand new things, um, whether it's like clothing or diapers or baby formula or, you know, um, like certain medical supplies. Though there are, there are tons of lists out there. I think there is a lot of chaos and negativity that can surround this like really important topic. Um, but I think it's also, I think it's relevant to point out that you really see a lot of the good in people and in Chicagoans coming out who really have like the best intentions and want to help people. And that's really heartwarming. You know, it it shows what kind of city Chicago is really. What are other resources that individuals need? I imagine language services and, you know, help uh, to, to process and to start the process to seek out asylum. Absolutely. Those are the two big things that I hear from folks, uh, kids who are being enrolled in schools that don't have enough ESL or English as second language um, staff or resources. My understanding is that that was a shortage even before this humanitarian crisis. And so it really has just been exacerbated since then. And the other thing that I think people don't realize they there's a huge need for legal support and case managers. My understanding is that people have only a year from the time that they arrive to apply for asylum. So the folks who arrived August 31st, I mean it's it's coming up fast their deadline to apply for asylum and that takes people, you know, that takes man hours that it could take money to hire an attorney and you know get all that paperwork processed. So I think nonprofits, uh, nonprofit leaders who I've spoken to in the past have really stressed the need for funding in order to hire more lawyers, hire more case managers, 
so that the people who went through all of the struggle to get here, make it here, aren't just immediately, you know, kicked out or left to their own devices. Madison Saavedra is a Southwest Side reporter with Block Club Chicago. Madison, thank you for joining us on CityCast. Thank you so much, Jacoby. Call your senator, call your congressman, send out a pass a general amnesty. Um, it's, it's needed. Uh, President Reagan did it. I was able to fix my legal status to Reagan's amnesty. And look, now I'm a social worker. I went to school. I'm paying taxes. I own properties. So invest in us and we will definitely give back. And we're hoping that the politicians stop playing with these individuals because at the end of the day, they are humans. They have feelings. And us being this 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 inhumane, it's not the answer. Balthazar, I appreciate you making time to talk with CityCast Chicago, and we really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you very much for your invitation, guys. Before I let you go, a little bit of news. This Thursday, state and federal COVID-19 emergency orders officially end. That means access to testing, medications, treatments could change, and you should check with your insurance and benefit provider for details. It's National Tennis Month, and you can enjoy free lessons at parks across Chicago throughout May. There'll be ones for kids and adults, as well as some cardio classes. Look at the show notes for more info. There's some good news. Starting Wednesday, the School of the Art Institute is hosting a film, animation, and sound festival at the Gene Siskel Film Center in the Loop. You can check out work from over 40 students. As always, we appreciate you for listening. Make sure you're reading along with our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, at chicago.citycast.fm. We'll be back in your inbox tomorrow. Hopefully you'll join us. Peace. And a one, and a three, and a 45.